The formation of the State of Israel can clearly be seen in Herzl's plan as a business startup. From this angle, the existing state is like the culmination of a business plan for a corporation. Different divisions and unit heads gathered the resources and legal basis to go public, executing Herzl's vision. However, unlike the corporate and entrepreneurial triumphs commonly found splashed across the covers of popular business magazines, websites, etc., details about Israel lobbying programs in the United States are still emerging into the historical record decades after they were launched and completed. A few illicit clandestine operations, formerly confined to the fading memories of operatives and dusty intelligence files, are also filling in critical gaps in the historical record. The transformative notion of creative destruction was also plainly at work in the evolution of corporate lobbying bodies. In 1917, Zionist leader and chemist Chaim Weizmann, 1874-1952, convinced the British government to declare support for establishing a Jewish national home in Palestine. The statement, the Balfour Declaration, was ratified by the League of Nations after World War I, and in 1922, Britain was appointed to rule Palestine. Some Jews from across the globe immigrated to Palestine, especially from Germany after Nazi persecution began. This surge ignited Arab fear that Palestine would become an exclusively Jewish national homeland. By 1936, guerrilla fighting between Zionist settlers and Palestinians erupted across Palestine. In an attempt to quell the violence, the British issued an edict, the White Paper, that restricted Jewish immigration into Palestine in 1939. The British would ultimately become targets of terror bombings by Jewish colonizers and various militant groups. Nazi atrocities provided a major catalyst for revitalizing Zionist organizations and more intense lobbying initiatives in the United States Congress. These efforts were overtly and covertly focused on circumventing British displaced person DP policies as well as securing arms. In Washington, Herzl's most important concept in play was negotiorum hestio, securing American recognition for a new state on the basis of applied special interest lobbying over broader competing foreign policy interests, championed by the State Department and other U.S. government agencies. It would be the first of many instances of creating Israeli facts on the ground and then appealing for U.S. president's approval. Implementing Herzl's vision meant subverting all previous U.S. obligations and understanding with the Arabs. President Franklin D. Roosevelt assured Arab leaders that the United States would not intervene on any side without consulting all parties. But Roosevelt was also the former governor of New York and extremely sensitive to the demands of Zionist activists. The original Balfour Declaration stated, Nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. Roosevelt's vice president, Harry S. Truman, 1884-1972, generally followed this even-handed approach until Roosevelt died shortly after re-election in 1945. Roosevelt's long-standing appointees connected to the movement remained in place, and growing entreaties from Zionist lobbyists were channeled through Truman's closest friends. 
The historical record reviews how Truman's policy on the Palestine question became heavily influenced by his need for campaign contributions for the looming 1948 presidential elections. This cycle repeats in the John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, and Robert F. Kennedy bids discussed later. When Harry S. Truman became president on April 12, 1945, the Department of State and Department of War did not support Zionist efforts to create a state in Palestine on geopolitical grounds and because it did not benefit broader U.S. national interests, in their view. But the agency's frantic, often confusing, and non-actionable warnings gave way to intense, ongoing lobbying campaigns. Truman served with Edward Jacobson... 1891 to 1955, in World War I. Their military experiences and post-war retail business partnership made Jacobson an important channel for advisors concerned with realizing the Zionist dream of a state in Palestine. When Truman and Jacobson's store went bankrupt in 1921, and Truman began a career in politics, the future president learned the importance of tapping wealthy individuals and interest groups for campaign contributions. Truman worked hard to pay off his debts and launch a political career. In 1934, just as he was entering the Senate, a banker who acquired his failed retail business loan forgave a portion of it, discounted the rest to $1,000, and contributed an equal amount to Truman's campaign. The money for influence message was clear. Truman also became a longtime beneficiary of boss Thomas Joseph Pendergast, 1873-1945, political machine, which thrived on winning and dividing public works contracts in Missouri. In 1940, Truman balanced competing economic special interest politics in his bid for Senate re-election with an appeal to the Freemasons. His fortunes were greatly boosted when he became Grand Master of their Missouri Grand Lodge. His campaign asserted that it proved he was trustworthy and of high principle, but he did also win an unflattering nickname, the Senator from Pendergast. As a U.S. Senator, Truman was under constant pressure from Pendergast's lobby to cater to the needs of the boss's ready-mix concrete contracts. He also began receiving urgent pleas from Zionist interest groups, among the most unusual from Peter H. Bergson, a.k.a. Hillel Kook, born in Lithuania, 1915-2001, to 2001, for the formation of a Jewish army in the Middle East. Bergson's Committee for a Jewish Army circulated a plan to Congress calling for an army of 100,000 Jews in Palestine to fight Nazis and fifth columnists of Syria, Iraq, and Egypt. In reality, Bergson was leading a front organization for Menachem Wolfowitz Begin, 1913-1992, organization Ergens vi Leumi, which also lobbied Nazi Germany for a Jewish army, as well as a formal alliance between 1940 and 1941, when Hitler appeared to have the upper hand in Europe. Other members of Irgun included Avram Stern, 1907-1942, and Yitzhak Shamir, 1915-2012, who later became Prime Minister of Israel. Ergun presented Nazi leaders with a January 11, 1941 proposal for a Jewish army, also referred to as the National Military Organization. The alliance plan was fully titled 
fundamental features of the proposal of the National Military Organization in Palestine, Irgunsweilomi, concerning the solution of the Jewish question in Europe and the participation of the NMO in the war on the side of Germany. Details of this stunning alliance would not emerge until years after the plan was drafted. The plan stated, The solving in this manner of the Jewish problem, and thus the bringing about with it of the liberation of the Jewish people once and for all, is the objective of the political activity and the years-long struggle of the Jewish freedom movement. The National Military Organization, Ergunsweilomi in Palestine, which is well acquainted with the goodwill of the German Reich government and its authorities towards Zionist activity inside Germany and towards Zionist immigration plan, is of the opinion that, one, common interests could exist between the establishment of a new order in Europe, in conformity with the German concept, and the true national aspirations of the Jewish people as they are embodied by the NMO, cooperation between the new Germany, and a renewed folkish national Hebraism would be possible, and Three, the establishment of the historic Jewish state on a national and totalitarian basis bound by a treaty with the German Reich, which would be in the interest of a maintained and strengthened future German position of power in the Near East. Proceeding from these considerations, the NMO in Palestine, under the condition of the above-mentioned national aspirations of the Israeli freedom movement, are recognized on the side of the German Reich offers to actively take part in the war on Germany's side. An ocean away, during the very month the U.S. entered the war, Truman was being lobbied by New York Congressman Andrew Summers, 1895-1949, for the formation of the very same army. Summers had also lobbied President Roosevelt and the Secretary of State for the creation of a Jewish army for Palestine composed of American Jews. Truman objected to any such segmentation of the full U.S. fighting force. He carefully relayed this to Andrew Summers two days after receiving his impassioned appeal and plan. But Truman did not object outright to a fighting force composed of Jews already in Palestine, and along with 32 other senators, lent his name to Summers' committee. Truman wrote, Appreciate very much your good letter of the 26th regarding the proposed Jewish army. I've had a great deal of correspondence about this suggestion, but so far as the United States is concerned, I think the best thing for the Jews to do is to go right into our army as they did in the last war and make the same sort of good soldiers as they did before. It is an honorable undertaking to organize an army for Palestine, but I think American citizens ought to serve in the American army. Bergson would form a succession of other front groups that competed with and diluted Isaiah Kennan's public relations on behalf of the Jewish agency. Kennan was particularly worried about Bergson's PR strategy, positioning Zionist efforts for a state as representative of universal Jewish aspirations. This not only encroached on the prerogatives of the American Jewish Conference, but also diluted carefully constructed slogans. Bergson's effort was well-executed and effective. Kennan noted that his Irgun competition was well-armed for public relations. These committees had a flair for publicity. They purchased advertising space, had literary talent, held public conferences, and submitted legislation to Congress. 
They confused many people because they diluted and watered down programs, resorting to palatable and ambiguous euphemisms in order to win broad support. They rarely spoke of a Jewish state, and they differentiated between the Hebrews of Palestine and the Jews of the United States, a strange distinction which few Jews could understand and which sounded very much like the separation of the American Council for Judaism. Militant committees found allies in Congress. While Kennan continued to be vexed by the American Council for Judaism, ACJ, the Irgun Group concentrated on forming a Team B of allies in the U.S. Treasury while building up feeder paramilitary training camps in the United States and Europe. Bergson's later calls for U.S. visas and immediate evacuations of Jews from Europe found a widespread congressional following for their simplicity. But when Bergson threatened Kennan's Zionist group's unified message, they lobbied the IRS to investigate and the U.S. State Department to deport Bergson, who ultimately left the U.S. of his own accord. Truman was angered and would have nothing to do with Bergson after one Jewish Army newspaper ad that also deeply bothered Kennan. Truman abraded Bergson for the unauthorized use of Congress members' names in their advertising and formally asked that his name be removed from the Committees for a Jewish Army's letter on May 7, 1943. Senator Lucas yesterday called my attention to an advertisement in the New York Times to which was signed the names of some dozen or so senators and to which the name Senator Edwin C. Johnson was signed as chairman. Senator Johnson informs me that this advertisement was never submitted to him for approval, and I have the same information from a number of other senators. I am withdrawing my name from your committee, and you are not authorized, under any circumstances, to make use of it for any purpose in the future. This does not mean my sympathies are not for the downtrodden Jews of Europe, but when you take it on yourself, without consultation, to attack members of the Senate and House of Representatives who are working in your interest, I cannot approve of that procedure, wrote Truman. Truman copied a Senate letter to several colleagues and to the United Jewish Appeal confirming his acquiescence to their lobbying pressure. But after he became president, Truman was bombarded with even more Zionist lobbying on Palestine that he privately found extremely irritating. Truman wrote, Facts were that not only were there pressure movements around the United Nations unlike anything that had been seen there before, but that the White House, too, was subjected to a constant barrage. I do not think I ever had as much pressure and propaganda aimed at the White House as I had in this instance. The persistence of a few of the extreme Zionist leaders, actuated by a political motive and engaging in political threats, disturbed and annoyed me. When Truman became president, Secretary of State Edward Statinius, 1900-1949, sternly warned him that he would become the target of concentrated pressure over Palestine and reminded him of his broader responsibilities. It is very likely that efforts will be made by some of the Zionist leaders to obtain from you at an early date some of the commitments in favor of the Zionist program, which is pressing for unlimited Jewish immigration into Palestine and the establishment there of a Jewish state. As you are aware, the government and people of the United States have every sympathy for the persecuted Jews of Europe and are doing all in their power to relieve their suffering. The question of Palestine is, however, a highly complex one and involves questions which go far beyond the plight of Jews of Europe. Secretary of State 
Joseph C. Grew, 1880 to 1965, who oversaw the establishment of the U.S. Foreign Service, echoed Statinius's concern and worryingly sent Truman a report of the presidential commitments made to Saudi ruler Ibn Saud, 1876 to 1953, before Roosevelt died. I thought that you'd like to know that although President Roosevelt at times gave expressions of views sympathetic to certain Zionist aims, he also gave certain assurances to the Arabs, which they regard as definite commitments on our part. On a number of occasions within the past few years, he authorized the department to assure the heads of different Near Eastern governments on his behalf that, in the view of this government, there should be no decision altering the basic situations in Palestine without full consultation of both Arabs and Jews. In his meeting with King Ibn Saud early this year, moreover, Mr. Roosevelt promised the king that as regards to Palestine, he would make no move hostile to the Arab people and would not assist the Jews against the Arabs. On May 28, 1945, Gru sent Truman another memo urging him not to cave in to congressional pressure instigated by the American Christian Palestine Committee. Lessing J. Rosenwald, 1891-1979, representing the dissident American Council for Judaism, met with Truman at the White House on December 4, 1945, urging the president to avoid perpetual bloodshed over Palestine. Rosenwald said, We have saber-rattling, boycott, recriminations, rioting, bloodshed, and threats of still more bloodshed. The situation is not eased by the issuance of belligerent notes by sovereign states of the Near East, or by demonstrations and nationalist propaganda on the part of Zionists in and out of Palestine. It is high time to call an end to this dangerous course, wrote Rosenwald. Rosenwald then laid out the American Council for Judaism's seven-point proposal calling for a UN declaration that Palestine not be an exclusively Muslim, Christian, or Jewish state, but rather enjoy freedom of expression and non-discriminatory immigration. Rosenwald wanted the European Jewish displaced person issue to be disconnected from the Palestine question and treated separately under a research-oriented procedure for determining where and how displaced persons wanted to relocate in post-war turmoil. He objected to simply propagandizing and sending them to Palestine. Rosenwald also called for economic development of the Palestinian territory through internationally administered financial assistance. However, Kennan and other movement leaders were incensed that an alternative minority group, like the American Council for Judaism, had such high-level administration access and press coverage. Kennan attributed the latter to what he saw as the inherent structural flaw of the American press. The American Council for Judaism included some 90 ultra-reform rabbis and laymen who were able to gain newspaper space because the press invariably features and exaggerates minority dissent, wrote Kennan. Lessing Rosenwald's and other appeals made an impact. The Joint Anglo-American Committee to study the Palestine question was formed and dispatched to the region. Truman signed Executive Order 9682 on January 19 of 1946, providing resources and a charter to examine political, economic, and social conditions in Palestine as they bear upon the problem of Jewish immigration and settlement therein, 
and the well-being of people now living therein. The Anglo-American Committee was also to study the relocation desires of Jewish displaced persons in Europe and Palestine, as well as the views of Arab representatives of the region. Before the committee reached any recommendations, Congressman Emanuel Seller, 1888-1981, of New York began working to undermine the integrity of the United Kingdom team members from behind the scenes. He implored Truman to immediately permit the entry of 100,000 Jewish displaced persons into Palestine before the study was finished. It is clearly evident from the rift that has arisen between the American and British members of the Anglo-American Committee of Inquiry on Palestine that the British are determined to control completely this inquiry. I believe it is time to give serious consideration as to whether we shall continue in this inquiry. I respectfully submit that unless an interim report is published recommending that 100,000 Jews be permitted the entrance into Palestine immediately, and unless the committee is permitted to continue its inquiry in an unbiased objective manner, unhampered by the British Foreign Office, that the American members of this committee be withdrawn forthwith. Truman immediately responded that the committee still had four months to compile its report, and it would be premature to make comments on this report until it is in the hands of Prime Minister Attlee and myself. Seller was likely miffed at Truman's dismissive final words. I highly appreciate your interest, of course, but a premature comment on a report that is not made will not help the situation one little bit. Had Seller been closer to the committee preparing the report, he might have rested easier. But such privileged information was only being compiled and channeled to key Truman donors by David K. Niles, 1890-1952. Niles acted as Truman's administrative assistant and political consultant to the president and also served in the Roosevelt administration. A high-level gatekeeper between key Zionist lobbyists and the president, he sent Truman's appointment secretary, Matthew J. Connolly, 1908-1976, a confidential memo about the Anglo-American Committee report on May 1 of 1946. The president may be interested in a conversation I had with Justice Frankfurter about midnight last night on the Palestine report. Justice Frankfurter, as you know, is perhaps the most prominent supporter of Palestine in public life today among the Jews and has been for many years. The great Zionist leader in this country and in the world for many years was Justice Louis K. Brandeis. Frankfurter and Brandeis had been intimate friends for many, many years. Frankfurter said to me after reading the report, I have only one regret. My hurt sank a little bit and then Frankfurter continued, my regret is that Justice Brandeis did not live to see this report. He would have called it a miracle. Then Frankfurter launched into a tirade against Silver and the other Zionist leaders who, he says, prefer a Jewish state on paper rather than doing something real for human beings. I asked Justice Frankfurter if he had any objection to my quoting him on this, and he said he did not, and he would be glad to have me do so. You may be certain that I will use this to the limit with our friends in New York the next couple of days. The memo is one of the documented indicators, along with Truman's notice to the United Jewish Appeal about terminating his relationship with Bergson, of the importance of Israel lobby campaign contributors to the inner workings of the Truman administration. The issue of Israel would be omnipresent as they mapped out a plan for the 1948 election campaign, kept lines of communication open, and continued to channel closely held information to donors. 
on June 20, under the leadership of Senator Robert F. Wagner of New York, nine more members of Congress sent Truman a letter demanding the admission of 100,000 Jewish displaced persons to Palestine and excoriating the British. A day later, Truman's Joint Chiefs of Staff under A.J. McFarland presented the U.S. Armed Forces' view of the Palestine question. McFarland urged that no U.S. forces be dispatched to carry out Anglo-American Committee recommendations. McFarland emphasized that any pacification effort involving the U.S. armed forces would result in conflict and the Middle East could well fall into anarchy and become a breeding ground for world war. The Joint Chiefs also felt that implementation of the report by force would prejudice British and U.S. interests in much of the Middle East, and that British and U.S. influence would constantly be curtailed except as it might be maintained by military force. Militant Zionist groups now operating across Palestine, such as Stern and Irgun, were stepping up attacks and terror bombing campaigns against the British, including the July 22, 1946 bombing of the King David Hotel. UK Prime Minister Clement Richard Attlee, 1883-1967, wrote Truman on July 25, 1946, outraged over the terror attack, but determined not to let terrorism affect the diplomatic process underway. Attlee wrote, The conversations between American and British officials on Palestine and related problems are now almost concluded, and agreement has been reached on all matters of substance. I'm sure you'll agree that the inhuman crimes committed in Jerusalem on 22 July call for the strongest action against terrorism, but having regard to the sufferings of innocent Jewish victims of Nazism, this should not deter us from introducing a policy designed to bring peace to Palestine with the least possible delay. On October 4, Truman appealed for 100,000 Jews to be allowed to immigrate to Palestine, as well as endorsing a Jewish agency plan for partition. In what would soon become a mainstay of American presidential electioneering, competition to see who is more pro-Israel, New York governor and presidential candidate Thomas Dewey upped the ante, calling for mass Jewish immigration to Palestine several days later. The British, sensing at once that U.S. electoral politics had become the driving factor in the Palestine question, hinted that Truman and Dewey's proposals were now motivated by domestic considerations. Like the American people, they would not find out how true this was until long after it mattered. By February 1947, Arab Zionist communications in the region were frozen. The British proposed administering Palestine as a UN trusteeship pending total independence in five years. Within 10 days, Isaiah Cannon and the Jewish Agency requested that the U.S. government align itself with the Zionist case and become their voice but received no satisfactory answer. Secretary of State George C. Marshall, 1880-1959, in particular was firm that a resolution would not only come from a free and full conference between the representatives of the British government and the Jewish Arab leaders in a conciliatory spirit, this even-handed approach made circumventing the State Department an even more urgent matter for the Jewish agency. Soon, the British turned the Palestine matter over entirely to the United Nations. The UN General Assembly established the Special Committee on Palestine, UNSCOP, on April 2 of 1947. 
the Jewish agency immediately began recruiting staff for intensified lobbying operations in New York and Washington offices to win a favorable UN outcome. Isaiah Kennan formally became the Jewish agency's director of information, and he was immediately granted a leave of absence from the American Emergency Committee for Zionist Affairs. Kennan was soon traveling on the 11-nation UNSCOP mission through Palestine and Europe as the Jewish agency's liaison to the U.S. press. He wrote, That evening I cabled New York that partition was assured. Paradoxically, because of UNSCOP's reaction to the testimony of partition's opponents, the Arab Higher Committee, led by the ex-Mufti, boycotted UNSCOP because its terms of reference had ignored their demands for independence and self-determination. But Arabs did meet UNSCOP diplomats at private parties where they could present their views without challenge. UNSCOP visited a school in Beersheba where Arab students turned their heads away according to instructions. Left with little to do in empty classrooms, diplomats Enrique Fabregat of Uruguay and Jorge Garcia Granados of Guatemala and I played tic-tac-toe on the blackboard. UN diplomats had been snubbed in Jaffa in every Arab town. They were swiftly evicted from the Golden Spindle, an Arab textile factory in Ramleh, after I called Ralph Bunch's attention to children who were operating machines. Jewish newspapermen were denied admission to an Arab cigarette factory in Haifa. An Arab city councilman boycotted the UNSCOP city hall visit, wrote Kennan. Kennan quickly became confident of the mission's positive future outcome for the Jewish agency, since Arabs were not even participating in the formal UN process. When they did attempt to make their case at the UN, Kennan would be ready. On May 1, 1947, the Jewish agency achieved a major lobbying victory by orchestrating a wave of public protests to the Truman administration, designed to make itself a non-voting representative in the United Nations. As the official spokesman, Kennan made a tactical decision to issue no statement about whether the Jewish agency would later press on for a full vote in the General Assembly, a move strongly opposed by Arab member states. A news report read, The Jewish agency's spokesman at Flushing Meadow declined to comment yesterday on the new American position. They indicated that they might find voteless representation on Committee 1 acceptable, but they would reserve a decision on any other solution that might be presented. U.S. officials hastily tried to position their increasingly frequent acquiescence to the lobby's demands as nothing more than a shift, certainly not a reversal in policy. And of course not orchestrated by pressure focused on the White House. In reality, the groups applying the most intense pressure to the Truman administration were the American Zionist Emergency Council, an umbrella speaking for six organizations, including the Zionist Organization of America and Hadassah, the American Christian Palestine Committee, the American Jewish Conference, and the Political Action Committee for Palestine. The American Zionist Emergency Council led the charge for voting status before Truman and the U.S. delegation at the United Nations, and released a statement. The American Zionist Emergency Council, speaking for six affiliated Zionist groups, telegraphed emphatic protest to President Truman that Arab views were being presented adequately while the Jewish viewpoint was barred, owing mainly to the attitude taken by the American delegation. The Jewish agency leadership met daily in a brownstone close to U.N. headquarters, 
Nahum Goldman led the Jewish agency, while Abba Hillel Silver, 1893-1963, represented the Jewish agency's American section. Emanuel Newman spoke for the Zionist Organization of America. Rose Halperin represented Hadassah, Chaim Greenberg, the labor Zionists, and Rabbi Max Kirschblum and Wolf Gold, the religious Zionists. During the next 40 months, Isaiah Kennan would act as press liaison and spokesperson for the Jewish Agency for Palestine, and liaison with the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine. Kennan would again travel to England, Palestine, Egypt, France, Switzerland, Germany, and Austria between June and August 1947 in his capacity as a Jewish Agency press representative. On October 3, 1947... Truman's former business partner, Edward Jacobson, was carefully briefed and prepped to lobby the president for a favorable UN outcome. Kennan noted Jacobson's singular utility as he was deployed by the cause. Truman had a Jewish partner, Eddie Jacobson, and many people thought that Jacobson influenced his decision in favor of Israel. Like many other B'nai B'rith members of the day, Jacobson was not a Zionist, but he did have an impact for it was he who insisted that Truman receive Weitzman, who, more than anyone else, persuaded Truman to overrule his Arabist advisors and to recognize the state of Israel. But Kennan's ostensibly representative umbrella organization was still dealing with more than apathetic non-Zionist members of B'nai B'rith. The highly active American Council for Judaism again registered its disagreement with the nationalist movement for the creation of Israel. Presenting a 27-page memorandum to the Committee of Inquiry on Palestine, ACJ President Lessing J. Rosenwald now simultaneously attacked the Herzl vision, the Balfour Declaration, and the modern U.S. Zionist efforts to set up a state as an anti-Semitic racialist lie that Jews the world over were a separate national body, said Rosenwald. Rosenwald's UN memorandum protested references to the historic connection of the Jewish people with Palestine. It was also stated that ignoring Christians and Muslims' equivalent historic and religious connection with Palestine had served to reattribute national characteristics of ambiguous loyalty to Jews of the world. The American Council for Judaism called for treating the issue of displaced persons as a larger problem affecting people of all faiths and attacked the Jewish agency for assiduously cultivating the notion that it was an authorized spokesperson for, quote, the Jews, unquote. Rosenwald stated bluntly a refrain he would repeat decades later, that the Jewish agency was not qualified to be the political spokesman for Jews in either the United States or the Soviet Union, where, quote, 70% resided, unquote. Truman concurred in a July 21, 1947 diary entry detailing conversations with former Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau, 1891 to 1967, that the Zionist lobbyists had no sense of proportion, nor did they have any judgment on world affairs. Although thoughts on the impending election also loomed in the entry, Truman's diatribe excoriated the selfishness of those lobbying him, who, he said, care not how many Estonians, Latvians, Finns, Poles, Yugoslavs, or Greeks get murdered or mistreated as displaced persons, as long as the Jews get special treatment, he said. 
Truman was philosophical about the loss of empathy and candor of any national or religious group after rising to power and influence, especially in the U.S. Congress, noting, they all come from displaced persons. Kennan and the American Zionist Council felt that any lengthy debate, especially such an open one about which bodies represented the Jewish cause, was unnecessary and dangerous. By having pro-Zionist executives grouped under the Jewish Agency's unified banner, Kennan could stress that these groups alone should be heard at the UN due to the Jewish Agency's official status under the mandate. Kennan put out his first press release on behalf of the Jewish Agency expounding on this legitimacy. In spite of lingering terror campaigns against the British in Palestine, Kennan worked to tarnish the image of Arab delegations in the UN. He characterized the same release as noting that the Egyptians had never lifted a fez to help win World War II. But even that was a more generous and balanced position than the effective public relations effort to Nazify the entire Arab position at the UN. Leaked U.S. State Department documents were circulated in the United Nations and Congress, revealing that the Mufti of Jerusalem, like the Irgun, had attempted coordinations with the Nazis. Only the Mufti had attempted to stem Jewish immigration to Palestine. David Niles warned Truman of the leak in an urgent May 12, 1947 memo. You have received a copy of documentary records submitted to the United Nations. This contains very confidential material that is in the files of the State Department. I think it is important to find out how it got out. It is very damaging evidence that the Arab representatives, now at the UNO, were allies of Hitler. There is also included in this material the diary of the Grand Mufti, which Justice Jackson, Robert H. Jackson, 1892-1954, found at Nuremberg. Copies of this document have already gone to all of the members of Congress. Truman was America's first White House victim to this type of orchestrated Israel lobby leak, which would later become a mainstay of interaction between U.S. administrations and APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Truman scrawled an angry handwritten message to Niles about the lobby's tactics and usurpation of foreign affairs powers through the acquisition and distribution of classified documents. I knew all about the purported facts mentioned. And of course, I don't like it. We could have settled this Palestine thing if U.S. politics had been kept out of it. Terror and silver are the contributing causes of some, not all, of our troubles. The document referred to could have been used by us for the welfare of the world had not our political situation come into the picture. I surely wish God Almighty would give the children of Israel and Isaiah, the Christians of St. Paul, and the sons of Israel a peek at the golden rule. Maybe he will decide to do that said Truman. But the lobby did have an Isaiah, who was bubbling over with pride at the lopsided version of history. Kennan was proud that the Mufti's diary had been effectively circulated onto the broader public via The Nation magazine. The Nation magazine's associates, headed by Freda Kirchway and Lily Schultz, had circulated a document indicting the pro-Axis activities of the ex-Mufti of Jerusalem, who had joined Hitler in Berlin. Coincidentally, on December 7, 1941, the day of infamy to broadcast calls for the final solution, wrote Kennan. Clumsy Arab efforts in the United Nations to counter the campaign simply reinforced growing negative views. Kennan noted that the Arab delegation's attempt to respond was as damning as the leaked diaries. 
After that polemic, the committee defeated Arab proposals, which called for immediate Palestine independence. Silver, Charette, Ben-Gurion summarized the Zionist case in less than 80 minutes, wrote Kennan. The effort to Nazify the broader Arab cause at the UN and in the press was successful. Countervailing documents revealing that Ergun and Stern, which were later integrated into the Israeli Defense Forces, had also approached the Nazis, would not surface until decades later and would never receive much recognition. UNSCOP recommended that the British mandate over Palestine finally be ended with the territory partitioned into two separate states over the strident objections of Arab leaders. By October, the Arab League Council member states were moving troops to Palestine's border. Meanwhile, President Truman began framing his grudging support for the Jewish colonists and newly arrived refugees from war-torn Europe as being in line with Roosevelt's principles of self-determination and self-government. Truman ordered the reluctant U.S. State Department to support the U.N. partition plan. The U.N. General Assembly passed the partition plan on November 29, 1947. Truman's recognition of Israel in May of 1948 occurred as a uniquely isolated executive decision made under intense lobbying. It was on the eve of a presidential re-election campaign to be funded by Friends in New York. Truman released his hand-corrected draft recognizing the new state to the press without consulting either the U.S. State Department or other key government agencies. It read, This government has been informed that a Jewish state has been proclaimed in Palestine and recognition has been requested by the provisional government thereof. The United States recognizes the provisional government as the de facto authority of the new state of Israel. In outraged response, Secretary of State George C. Marshall threatened to campaign against Truman in the upcoming November elections. The harsh State Department view of Truman's political expediency was summed up by Gordon P. Merriman, 1900 to 1999, a member of the policy planning staff in July of 1948. He wrote, We have no long-term Palestine policy. We do have a short-term, open-ended policy, which is set from time to time by White House directives. The government agency revolt against Truman also revealed structural weaknesses of the government. Bureaucratic indecision and an inability to present attractive and actionable alternative recommendations. It meant that U.S. government agency and legitimate Arab concerns were steamrolled. The Zionist case, tempered by Nazi atrocities in World War II, was pointed, simple, and professionally executed. Meanwhile, Truman's State Department and Joint Chiefs of Staff advisors continued to send detailed, lengthy, hand-wringing position papers through May of 1948. While accurate and well-documented, they failed to present a simple, actionable, and unified plan for tackling the issue in a way that would adequately represent U.S. interests and provide closure to the issue. Public relations effectively marginalized the legitimacy of Palestinian concerns, a factor that has continued for many decades. Truman's agency heads were simultaneously charged with the more important tasks of winding down a global war, developing new policies toward the Soviet Union, and rebuilding Europe. Of course, the government bureaucracy had no solution that would or should contribute to Truman's immediate desire for re-election. 
the U.S. Department of Justice was not yet aware of or attempting to rein in an intense global lobby as it surged forward into domestic U.S. affairs. To this day, most history students remember little of the 1948 presidential campaign except a photo of Truman jubilantly waving a newspaper that incorrectly proclaimed his rival, Governor Thomas Dewey, the winner. The campaign's financial history is useful and more relevant, but it was completely unknown to American voters when it mattered most. Contemporary news accounts provided no clue as to how Truman suddenly managed to raise massive funds to stage a comeback. But serious historians now know it would not have happened without Abraham J. Feinberg, 1908 to 1998. Cash infusions into Truman's re-election campaign from the elite financial arm of the nascent Israel lobby directed by Feinberg averted Truman's almost certain defeat. This also consummated a prerogative of secret and growing one-on-one -on -one relations between the Israel lobby and U.S. presidential administrations. On May 25, 1948, a vital initiative of the re-election campaign began when Truman received Chaim Weizmann, Israel's first president, as a state guest and discussed lifting an embargo on arms sales. They chatted about U.S. foreign aid to Israel in the 90 to $100 million range. Truman had no way of knowing that his embargo had long since been lifted by the Haganah, a paramilitary force in Palestine, predecessor of the IDF, the Jewish agency, and a network of arms smugglers covertly rushing stolen and illegally reconditioned World War II surplus weapons into Palestine and later Israel in violation of U.S. law. Truman appointed James G. MacDonald, 1886 to 1964, an accomplished New York publicist and former New York Times editorial staffer, as his first ambassador to Israel on June 22, 1948. Before his appointment, MacDonald traveled overseas on a sponsored trip, but he lost no time excoriating the United Nations upon returning to the U.S. One report read, Last night at his home in Bronxville, James G. MacDonald declined to comment on his new diplomatic duties, saying that such information should come from the State Department. However, on arrival here on June 7, from a visit to South Africa, where he was a guest of the Jewish community, he was quoted as having expressed a lack of faith in the ability of the United Nations to settle the Palestine problem. The United Nations are almost futility personified, he said. In the meantime, Truman sat down with Abraham Feinberg to discuss his re-election campaign's financial problems. Abraham J. Feinberg rose through entrepreneurial grit from humble surroundings to become the chairman of Kaiser Roth Corporation, a New York-based apparel manufacturer. Later, he would become chairman of the American Bank and Trust Company, acquired in 1978 by Bank Leumi. Upon his death in 1998, Feinberg was also serving as chief executive for a major Coca-Cola bottler in Israel. Many attribute these and other concessions to his always well-financed, dedicated public and private initiatives for Israel. Feinberg was instrumental in operations funneling arms to the Haganah and later arranging financing for Israel's clandestine nuclear weapons program. Feinberg's understanding of Truman, Kennedy, and Johnson campaign realities and his role was very succinct. He said, My path to power was cooperation in terms of what they needed, campaign money. As a member of the Democratic Party's Campaign Finance Committee, Feinberg was summoned to the White House for a meeting with Truman, 
who is now drumming up campaign support in earnest, buoyed by his role in recognizing Israel. Although accounts of the historic meeting vary, Feinberg remembered Truman saying, If I had to bet money, I'd bet on myself. If I could go across the country by train... In the meeting, Truman Aides presented an estimated price tag of $100,000 for the National Whistle Stop Tour, around $1.2 million in today's dollars. Feinberg brashly guaranteed the money would be raised within two weeks on his own behalf, as well as that of K Jewelry Company owner Ed Kaufman. Not only did he come through on the pledge, Feinberg also arranged to have Jewish delegations meet and refuel the Whistle Stop campaign providing additional cash contributions all along the way. Feinberg estimated that the total donations to the re-election campaign reached $400,000, or almost $5 million in today's dollars. He received and cherished a personal seven-page letter of thanks from Truman. Truman also offered to make him U.S. ambassador to Israel, which he turned down. Later, in his personal memoirs, Truman frankly noted the quid pro quo basis of this special interest placed upon him to provide a U.S. diplomatic and even military umbrella to Israel. He wrote, Top Jewish leaders in the United States are putting all sorts of pressure on me to commit American power and forces on behalf of Jewish aspirations in Palestine. The central, all-important role of Feinberg and the budding Israel lobby's financing in Truman's victory was a closely guarded secret at the time. Contemporary press accounts of the famous whistle-stop campaign in 1948 and most campaign historians simply could not link Feinberg or Israel lobby funds to the Truman election campaign. This operational security about donors was critical to the campaign's public image. The hidden financial and logistical operations and closed-door deal-making for political appointments would not emerge until it was irrelevant. Throughout his career, Feinberg was content to remain in relative public obscurity, which he knew guaranteed his effectiveness. However, when the Truman Library was founded, Feinberg consented to an interview that confirmed some activities. Feinberg worked closely with both Eddie Jacobson and Isaiah Kennan to open doors with the Truman administration and in Congress. Feinberg observed that claiming huge strength in numbers and managing Jacobson, who had a much longer history than Truman, was critical. Feinberg said, Anyway, Truman was receptive for several reasons. Coincidental with my gradual approach to him, Eddie Jacobson became much more important than I in his usefulness, since he was an active member of the B'nai B'rith, which had a large political following. The B'nai B'rith embraced then, I think, about 400,000 people. He had been a partner of Truman and a very close friend. Eddie was a wonderful man. He was not a creator. He was a follower of ideas, which were presented to him to present to the president. But he did that job well, and he was able, obviously because of his association with the president and with the knowledge of the president, that there was political muscle behind this organization. According to Isaiah Cannon, Feinberg was also indispensable for jump-starting his own early access to bipartisan power and political fundraising. Later, in 1951, when I began to lobby for economic aid to Israel, Feinberg was indefatigable. Just as he had established a warm relationship with Truman's aides, he made it a point to know many senators and their aides, and he would call them on the telephone to ask them to see me. And he would call me from time to time to make certain that we were maintaining a balance between Republicans and Democrats. 
between both sides of the House and Senate. But Kennan and Feinberg's measured words mask the ever-present threat of politically-oriented violence inherent in the movement. British Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs Ernest Bevan, 1881-1951, presented an uncompromising challenge to the growing lobby that could have cost him his life. In a lengthy 1975 interview for the Truman Presidential Library, Feinberg put a soft spin on one potentially violent confrontation occurring between Zionist organizations and the United Kingdom at the end of World War II. Now, the business with Palestine and then Israel was front-page news in the world, largely because of Ernest Bevan and Bevan's attitude, which was impossible. Even when the concentration camps were liberated, he refused to let any members of the survivors go to Palestine, which was then a British protectorate. I, meanwhile, was deeply involved in the preparation of Israel for self-defense. The UK policy led by Bevan did not support the creation of a Jewish homeland in Palestine and worked actively toward future reintegration of displaced persons within Europe. Bevan supported an Arab-ruled state in Western Palestine and blocking armed Jewish groups turning toward terrorism. He even called for forcefully returning Jewish Holocaust survivors trying to enter Palestine to DP camps in Europe. Bevan was critical of the U.S. refusal to welcome and issue more visas to displaced persons, even as the U.K. offered, then withheld, 100,000 of its own visas. However, the political reality of Britain's burgeoning indebtedness and dependence on the United States at the close of World War II meant that the U.N., and especially the U.S., would ultimately decide the matter. Bevan voiced his strong objections to the creation of Israel, largely on principle. The majority proposal is so manifestly unjust to the Arabs that it is difficult to see how we could reconcile it with our conscience, he wrote. Contemporary newspapers broke sketchy stories that this opposition had made Bevan and London targets for terrorist retaliation. However, as with the Feinberg-Truman election financing, the relevant details surrounding Zionist terrorism have only recently emerged. In 2003, the UK's National Archives released intelligence reports about advanced planning for a terrorist assassination attempt on Bevan, coordinated by Zionist groups active in Palestine and the UK and the US. The report read, Jewish terrorist groups plotted to assassinate Ernest Bevan, the foreign secretary, in the post-war labor government as part of a bombing campaign on the British mainland inspired by the IRA. MI5 warned Clement Antley, the Prime Minister, that the Stern Gang and Ergun intended to establish five terrorist cells in London to mount a bombing campaign aimed at driving Britain out of Palestine. Bevan, who was opposed to the creation of the State of Israel, was a prime target. Security service files also contained details of an outlandish plan by the followers of an American Zionist rabbi to bomb London from the air. Details of that plot have been heavily censored. The warnings came in 1946 from James Robertson, head of the Security Services Middle East section. He wrote, Our Jerusalem representative has received information that the Irgun and Stern groups have decided to send five cells to London to work on IRA lines. To use their own words, the terrorist intended to beat the dog in his own kennel. The Stern group has been steadily recruiting in recent months and may now number 600 followers, most of whom are desperate men and women who count their own lives cheap. In recent months, it has been reported that they have been training selected members for the purpose of assassinating a prominent British personality. Special reference has been made several times to Mr. Bevan. 
The plot to bomb the capital from the air was said to be the product of the followers of one Rabbi Korf, read the intelligence report. While Israel's emergence as a modern state in the aftermath of the Holocaust has been broadly lauded, the hidden lobbying, arms smuggling, covert election finance, threats of violence, and thwarted law enforcement attempts in the United States clearly don't fit within the commonly promoted consensus narrative. That Israel was also born in a crucible of Zionist terrorism is usually only a brief footnote or ignored entirely in high-profile histories. However, according to historian Paul Johnson, the distinguishing characteristic of the on-the-ground formation of Israel was the unprecedented, timely, and highly effective deployment of terrorism. Johnson wrote, If British evacuation had been postponed another year, the United States would have been far less anxious to see Israel created, and Russia would almost certainly have been hostile. Hence, the effect of the terror campaign on British policy was perhaps decisive to the entire enterprise. The Truman administration possessed, but did not act on, Central Intelligence Agency reports about illegal arms smuggling and clandestine false flag flight operations to Palestine that broke the Neutrality Act, while mysterious reports of war surplus bombers moving between North America and the Mediterranean sporadically appeared in the mainstream press, the role of fundraisers and Haganah operative groups active in arms smuggling within the U.S., like the terrorist charges, would be only lightly investigated and seldom prosecuted. We discuss declassified connections between the U.S. fundraising groups Czech arms merchants, Latin American dictators, and organized crime later on. Throughout 1948, Zionist groups and Isaiah Kennan made it a point to constantly broadcast lobbying muscle claims in the mainstream press. In a major 1948 article titled, Zionist groups are active in the U.S., eight major parties here claim 700,000 members among the country's five million Jews, by Ira Freeman, Little data about the alleged scope and reach of the lobby was left to the imagination of politicians. With the fulcrum of Zionism shifted dramatically to the new state of Israel, the power arm of the international movement to settle the Jews in Palestine now definitely is in the United States. The five million American Jews constitute the greatest concentration of population and wealth of their co-religionists in the world today. In Eastern Europe, Formerly the area of densest population, the Jews were reduced from 9 million to about 3,500,000 by Nazi and fascist extermination and incidental war deaths between 1933 and 1945. Not all Jews in the United States are Zionists. Of the 5 million, Zionists like to estimate that four-fifths are sympathetic to their cause, a guess that anti-Zionists strenuously contradict. In any case, only a little more than a million Jews in America bought shekels, or ballots, to vote in the election of delegates to the last World Zionist Congress in 1946. The aggregate claim membership of the eight Zionist parties in the United States is under 700,000. Each of the political parties here is an American, or American-Canadian, or, in a few cases, a Western Hemisphere affiliate of an international Zionist party. Invariably, the national headquarters of each American party is in New York, which has the largest Jewish population of any city in the world, as well as the lion's share of wealth and influence possessed by Jews. Read the article. From the perspective of critics and Jewish anti-Zionist opposition groups, 
Truman's recognition of Israel also largely removed the welcome mat of frequent access to opinion editorial space and reporters at elite newspapers such as the New York Times. Paid foreign propaganda and a massive foreign finance public relations campaign soon began filling the void. Examining the creation of Israel from Harry S. Truman's point of view yields several insights that provide valuable context for understanding the Israel lobbying that continues to operate to this day in the United States. While Truman lamented the domestic foreign interest pressure on his policy, he appeared to have little appreciation for the vast and growing international coordination capabilities of the Israel lobby. When he was lobbied as a senator to support a Jewish army in Palestine, he had no way of knowing that the front organization in Washington represented Menachem Begin's Irgun Vzvai Leumi, which is in contact with the Axis while it was winning. He also did not know that in spite of his explicit ban, U.S. military equipment was being purchased, refurbished, and stolen for shipment to Jewish fighters in Palestine. As U.S. president, he was stepping in front of a movement already creating facts on the ground, over which he had little or no control. He could only get in front and later leverage them for political gain. This was, of course, the very essence of Herzl's Negotiorum Hestio. The timely leaks about the Mufti of Jerusalem's collaboration with the Nazis and subsequent UN smear campaign against the legitimacy of all Arab governments and Palestinians were highly effective. And the lobby continues to excel in such tactics. In that particular campaign, Israel lobby operatives leveraged friends in the U.S. media, which included The Nation magazine, though, as Kennan noted later, that particular channel was ultimately lost. Others soon replaced it. Many media and academic figures were placed under contract, as we'll see later on. Leaking explosive, closely held, and sometimes classified information at precisely the right moment would become an Israel lobby strength. The Israel lobby developed an insatiable acquisitiveness for U.S. classified documents that administrations and the State Department hoped to use to U.S. as opposed to Israel's sole advantage. U.S. Department of State investigative files revealed the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee's director received classified U.S. national defense information. In 1975, the Ford administration tried to sell improved Hawk anti-aircraft missiles to Jordan and duly sent notification containing classified Department of Defense data to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and House Foreign Affairs Committee. APAC's director Morris Amate reviewed the classified document after being informed, quote, secretly by aides of Senator Clifford P. Chase, Republican of New Jersey, and Representative Jonathan B. Bingham, Democrat of New York, unquote, according to the New York Times. According to criminal investigation files released on January 20, 2012, this disclosure to APAC was unauthorized and included the dollar amounts and quantitative configurations of the missile system. The State Department considered, quote, the specific details of Jordan's military equipment needs are information provided to us in confidence by that government. The classification of the documents in question was, in our view, substantively proper, unquote. Amate and APAC quickly mounted a massive campaign in opposition to the missile sale, telling constituent public pressure groups that the weapons were capable of providing cover for offensive operations against Israel. 
Jordan subsequently considered acquiring a similar system from the Soviet Union. According to the U.S. Department of State, had Jordan actually entered into such a major arms supply relationship with the Soviets, this would have had a significant adverse impact on U.S. national defense interests and on U.S.-Jordanian relations. The Defense Department's letter is still classified. The U.S. State Department advised the Justice Department on the feasibility of criminally prosecuting Amate. They wrote, With the public disclosure of the information having already occurred, the authorization of its release for the purpose of prosecution would not be expected to cause damage with our relations with Jordan. However, Amate was never charged and continued to serve as director of APAC until he resigned in 1980 to establish an Israel-oriented political action committee in Washington. In 1984, the FBI found APAC in possession of secret international trade organization documents that the U.S. was using to negotiate a favorable free trade agreement with Israel. The subsequent bilateral agreement would be uniformly disadvantageous to U.S. industry, yielding a $182.25 billion loss to the U.S., between 1985 and 2018. In a campaign to toughen U.S. policy toward Iran, two AIPAC executives, along with a colonel at the U.S. Department of Defense, were indicted in 2005 for obtaining and distributing classified U.S. national defense information in violation of the 1917 Espionage Act. These were not coincidences. The Truman experience in the 1984 presidential elections established a constant race for Israel lobby political campaign contributions, implicitly given to secure foreign interests. This race is euphemized in the U.S. mainstream media as a quest for the Jewish vote, a framing coup Kennan would be proud of, but an upsetting overgeneralization for American Jews who disapprove of Israeli and U.S. regional policies. Even as Truman's era of unrestricted, unmonitored cash contributions came to an end under campaign finance reform and openness laws, the importance of campaigning on a pro-Israel platform soon became a no-brainer for politicians. Since 1948, presidential candidates, with few exceptions, have competed to out-Israel their opponents to secure access to funding. Moderates are effectively and simply branded as anti-Israel. This dependence on campaign contribution severely limits both presidential foreign policymaking in the Middle East and political capital for warranted law enforcement actions against key contributor groups at home. As John F. Kennedy would later lament, the exchange was implicit Re-election funds, in exchange for control of policymaking and critical political appointments, vetted and promoted by the Israel lobby. While insiders and elite political operatives knew about the driving force behind much U.S. policymaking in the region, the American public remained largely in the dark. Truman's personal correspondence on the matter did not come to light until it was declassified by the government and released by the Truman Library in 1975. Feinberg granted an interview in 1973 about the Whistle Stop campaign to the Truman Presidential Library which then did not release it till 1984. If the American public had an accurate and immediate juxtaposition of the lobbying for the creation of Israel against Feinberg's campaign finance coordination, it is entirely possible that they would have thought it was as unseemly 
as the Pendergast machine and chosen not to elect Truman president in 1948. Truman had no fallback strategy. Secrecy was therefore paramount to the whistle-stop campaign's success. Since the 1940s, the secrecy pervading the U.S.-Israel relationship, Israel's U.S. lobbyists, and Middle East policymaking has only become more pronounced. So much so that historians are only beginning to understand the specifics of what was truly driving regional policy and policymaking. Declassification ultimately provides some relevant information to the public, but the ongoing shift from paper to digital files may mean the days of enduring records are ending. The Bush administration destroyed email correspondence and backups of key digital communications relevant to its decision to invade Iraq in 2003. This ability to permanently delete documentary evidence about behind-the-scenes decision-making influence may become the norm rather than an anomaly. Similar secrecy has been vital for shielding from public examination how, in the face of numerous Israel lobby violations, the Foreign Agents Registration Act has been tied into its own scabbard at the expense of the American people. No example has been as clear as the case of the Justice Department's FARA registration order to the American Zionist Council, declassified in the year 2008.